It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 199, The Fall of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was known for its cruelty. Judged for the vaunting inscriptions of her kings, no power more useless, more savage, more terrible ever cast its gigantic shadow on the page of history as it passed on the way to ruin. The kings of Assyria tormented the miserable world. They exult to record how space failed for corpses, how unsparing a destroyer is their goddess Ishtar, how they flung away the bodies of soldiers like so much clay, how they made pyramids of human heads, how they burned cities, how they filled populous lands with death and devastation, how they reddened broad deserts with carnage of warriors, how they scattered whole countries with the corpses of their defenders as with shaft, how they impaled heaps of men on stakes and strewn the mountains and choked rivers with dead bodies, how they cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on the walls and left their bodies to rot with bears and dogs on the entrance of gates of cities, how they employed nations of captives in making brick and fetters, how they cut down warriors like weeds or smote them like wild beasts in the forest and covered pillars with the flayed skins of rival monarchs. That quote that we just began the episode with uh, was from The Minor Prophets by Farrar. In this episode, we cover an 18-year period of decline and fall of the Assyrian Empire. For the terrors of Assyria have run their course, and God has declared now is the time to judge the nations and reset the power structures of the world. Taking the perspective of Josiah again, Josiah is probably continuing to receive word of the chaos going on east of Israel. There's so much going on. There's a whole load of tribes and nation states coming out of modern Iran and above it right now. Zaraxeres, the Mede, consolidates a whole group of these peoples in modern Iran, which we'll cover later. Zaraxeres and his allies and other tribe states make a significant counterattack upon the Assyrians along a unified eastern front. But this is only allowed because massive internal strife is going on inside of Assyria. Additionally, a southern campaign is going on around the territory of Babylon. Assyria is getting racked with internal woes as well. Ashurbanipal, its famous powerful king, dies in 631 BC. And if you remember at the end of his life, he gets distant and he allows military too much power. He distances himself from his people. Um, even his uh, city-states out there that he rules and governs, it's like he almost kind of steps back from overlording them and lets them rebel, but he empowers some and others. It's strange. And, and the ambassadors um, are also creating conflict within um, Assyria. Also, he's the guy who got paranoid and killed entire groups of people within Nineveh just to keep his power. So he's distant, paranoid, powerful, and arrogant. It's not unheard of qualities of a tyrant, but he allows divisions within his borders 
and there are severe divisions within his own military and government. So upon his death, it's like the entire world erupts in revolt. At his death, there was a big question of who would actually rule Assyria. Ashurbanipal has a younger son named Seracus who wants the throne, but it wasn't his. It was his older brother. Instead of resigning the throne, he goes to Babylon to be king there and to raise up a power base, enough of a power base for him to go back to Nineveh and take it on. And this would have worked for him, but instead he's met by a challenger from the south when he gets to Babylon, a native Chaldean named Nabopolassar. He rules a territory south of Babylon, and he ends up pushing Seracus out of Babylon as he takes the city. Seracus flees north, but continues his war with his elder brother for the throne. So within Assyria, there's a massive civil war going on, and it just lost Babylon. Nabopolassar consolidates his power at this time in Babylon. And meanwhile, in the east, Xaraxeres drives out the Scythians after 20 years of conflict. Assyria is in the midst of a civil war, and by 623 BC, Seracus finally succeeds in his civil war, takes the throne from his elder brother, Asher Itilani, and the civil war results in a loss of thousands of lives, and the results in a wreck to the Assyrian economy, and Assyria starts to lose its colonies. Egypt, everything in Iran, Babylon revolts. Um, we know Israel just kind of takes over its own country again. And the state of Assyria is in a horrible state. Seracus is an able administrator, somewhat, but he's not the general king arriving to save the day. And for the next 11 years, Seracus fights to restore the Assyrian Empire, which seems to change overnight into a fight for survival. At this stage, the Medes, Egyptians, Babylonians, and Israelites are free from Assyria's dominance. Each of these internal revolts or civil wars they had within Assyria pulled away the much-needed troops to bring stability to its conquered nations. And as this civil war goes on, it, it's painfully more referenced called a Syrian civil war. In some of the details, they're lost to history, especially the key players. But in each case, Assyria is further weakened. Medes become powerful and start to join forces with neighboring states and tribes. Nabopolassar grows in power in Babylon, building his army and power base daily from the enormous commercial resources of the city of Babylon. In the year of Josiah's revival, Seracus begins his counterattack on Babylon. This is the very first place he wants to take. He wants to take Babylon. He'll probably turn um, east next and attack Xerxes. Um, but Babylon he wants because it's an enormous city. The war goes badly for him, and he loses battle after battle with Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar counter-strikes and nearly takes Asher, and Seracus takes up defensive positions solely in his own territory. So at this stage, Nabopolassar actually defeats the Assyrians and pushes them out of Babylon proper and its surrounding territories. And as Babylon threatens Asher, something surprising happens. The Assyrians send forth a proposal asking Egypt to help them in their fight with the Babylonians. The response of the Egyptians will be interesting, considering how they destroyed Egypt so many times previously. Pharaoh Somaticus receives the message and doesn't do much with it. Somaticus is old at this point, and he doesn't have he, he does have a young son who will become king in the future years, whose name is Necho. Actually, would become known as Pharaoh Necho II. Uh, but Somaticus, he's not so interested in, in going to war in, in the late years of his kingdom. So a stalemate ensues as the armies face each other. 
but neither force was able to make any progress. Um, Assyria did not receive the help from Egypt um, it desired. So now Babylon is threatening Assyria, and something even more interesting happens. Nation states have a moment to form here because the Assyrians are actually on defensive for once. Diplomacy now changes everything. This stalemate ended in 616 BC when Nebuchadnezzar entered an alliance with Xerxes, king of the Medes, who had also taken advantage of the unremitting civil wars in Assyria to free his Iranian peoples, the Medes, the Persians, Parthians, from the Assyrian yoke, and form them into a powerful force. In 616 BC, this alliance of peoples now included the Scythians and Chimerians. They felt strong enough to move the center of their operations northward and launch an attack on the war-ravaged Assyrian heartland. The terms of the alliance was Xerxes offered his daughter Amates to the son of Nabopolassar in marriage. This son's name is Nebuchadnezzar, of the Book of Daniel fame. This marriage actually occurs at the Siege of Asher. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon will later be built to make her feel at home in flat Babylon since she was from a mountain, mountainous, fertile place. This alliance of southern, eastern, and northern nations smashes into Assyrian territory. The first major casualty was Asher, the ancient city of Assyria with its temple to Asher. It was besieged and the city was completely destroyed. 614 BC is the date for the destruction of Asher. By 612 BC, the Allied armies arrive outside of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. So again, let, let's back up a bit and take that perspective of Josiah. He watches all of this break out in the world. He probably grew used to no news as the stalemate lasted for years until he started to receive word from ambassadors courting his favor as well, drawing him into an alliance. Refusing alliances but welcoming ambassadors, Josiah has to understand what's going on. As each ambassador visits, the prophets must only feel confirmed as they see the rising tide against the Assyrians. It's when the eastern forces join together in an alliance, Josiah must have been amazed at the pace everything started to move in. Josiah must have felt a feel of nationalistic pride as all this happened. He must have had strengthened his forces and borders and solidified his nation-state against any other attacks, and he mobilized himself for war if it was to ever come. Tempted by a warlike culture surrounding his nation-state, consider Josiah as an armed Swiss neutral state, refusing armed marches to his land in conflict or attack or even forming alliances. Josiah put his trust in God and he strengthened himself and his nation. More news follows. The combined assault of over five nation-states from the north, east, and south is crippling Assyria. Withdrawing to their fortified cities, Nabopolassar and the combined armies broke through the walls of Asher and destroyed the entirety of the city, including its famed temple, and the campaign continued to the gates of Assyria's capital, Nineveh. The shock of shocks went through the region when Nabopolassar and Xerxes broke through the walls of Asher and devastated the city. Josiah was probably amazed and everyone alive was taken that the Assyrians were finally dealt a significant blow, not a battle or a setback, as the severe destruction of one of its home cities. A potential end to its civilization was at hand. Relief must have been felt throughout the world as they knew it. Now we arrive at the gates of Nineveh, which becomes another stalemate. 
The Allies cannot break through the enormous walls, and the Assyrians still have a competent army to fight back. Yet if the walls could be torn down, the Allies would prevail. Here's a description of Nineveh found from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. In Sennacherib's day, the wall around Nineveh was 40 to 50 feet high. It extended for 4 kilometers along the Tigris River and 13 kilometers around the inner city. The city wall had 15 main gates, five of which had been excavated. Each of these gates was guarded by stone bull statues. Both inside and outside the wall, Sennacherib created parks, a botanical garden, and a zoo. He built a water system containing the oldest aqueduct in the history at Jerwan across the Gomel River. These walls were ridiculous, and the Allies were not prepared for a siege at this level. It would require supernatural intervention at this stage to assist these Allies. Thus, we need to go back and pull the words of the prophets. Didn't God already speak that Nineveh would be destroyed? The prophet Nahum has the most relevant words to this age. The prophet Nahum predicted the destruction of Nineveh in the book that bears his name. The following items were to be part of the destruction of the great city. Nahum 1.8, an overflowing flood would make an utter end of this place. Nahum 1.10, Nineveh would be destroyed while her inhabitants were drunken like drunkards. Nahum 3.13, Nineveh would be unprotected because fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Nahum 3.19, Nineveh would never recover, for their injury has no healing. Nahum 3.17, the downfall of Nineveh would come with remarkable ease, like figs falling when the tree is shaken. If we summarize these words, we get the following, that the siege would not be long and drawn out. There would be an overwhelming flood, figurative or literal, and it would lead to great destruction by fire and total destruction of the city, forever ruining it for productive purposes, and Nineveh would be lost to history. So let's see what happens. There's another prophecy to add here, but it's from a secular source, not a godly one. But hey, can't God talk through anyone? Didn't he name the son of the ungodly king Ammon, Josiah? Speaking destiny over the child, yet named by his wicked father? So even God can speak through the ungodly. Why not some ungodly priest in Assyria saying something that actually was from God? According to some historians, there was a famous oracle spoken. And we don't actually know who spoke this oracle, and maybe it was, you know, maybe it was Jonah back in the day, and it passed on from generation. We just don't know. But but the oracle was this. Nineveh should never be taken until the river becomes its enemy. So as the armies stood outside the walls, a great storm arrives and devastates the walls of Assyria. Here's the quote from the book, The Rise and Fall of Assyria. In 612 BC, Nabopolassar united the Babylonian army and with the army of the Medes and Scythians and led a campaign which captured the Assyrian citadels in the north. The Babylonian army laid siege to Nineveh, but the walls of the city were too strong for the battering rams, so they decided to try and starve the people out. A famous oracle had been given that Nineveh should never be taken until the river became its enemy. And after a three-month siege, rain fell in such abundance that the waters of the Tigris inundated part of the city, 
overturning one of its walls for a significant measurable distance. And then the king, convinced that the oracle was accomplished and despairing of any means of escape to avoid falling alive into the enemy's hands, constructed in his palace an immense funeral pyre, placed on it his gold and silver and his royal robes, and then, shutting himself up with his wives and eunuchs in a chamber formed in the midst of the pyre, he disappeared in the flames. Nineveh opened its gates to the besiegers, but this tardy submission did not save the proud city. It was pillaged and burned and then razed to the ground so completely as to evidence the implacable hatred enkindled in the minds of the subject nations by the fierce and cruel Assyrian government. Isn't that amazing when you compare the stories of history with the actual prophecies that were already spoken? An overwhelming flood would make an utter end of this place. And according to history, rainfall was in such abundance it tore down a section of its enormous walls. And when the flood subsided, Nabopolassar and his allied forces marched their army into the gap of the walls, and a very complete slaughter ensued. What followed was destruction by fire, and abandonment was prophesied. The actions of its king are interesting. He burned himself in a funeral pyre. The king, refusing to be taken and tortured, places himself with his eunuchs and treasures and wives in the funeral pyre as it is lit and burned as the Allied troops approached. Nineveh has fallen. Despite its complete destruction, a few thousand soldiers were under the command of Asher Ubalit, got away, and they fled west to fight another day in Haran. The Assyrians are not gone as a civilization yet, but their base and capital are effectively removed from the map. And another thing to consider is the vastness of wealth that just got plundered. The world's wealth reserves were just plundered and sent to Babylon and to the east. Kings became billionaires and generals millionaires instantly, fueling growth and expansion of new cities. All right, we conclude this episode with conclusions drawn from this moment by a great historical mind and a far greater Bible student. We start with Will Durant from our Oriental Heritage, and we end with Matthew Henry's scripture commentary. Here's Will Durant's comment on um, Nineveh and the destruction of Nineveh and Assyria. Nineveh was laid waste as ruthlessly and completely as her kings had once ravaged Susa in Babylon. The city was put to the torch, the population was slaughtered or enslaved, and the palace was so recently built by Asher Banipal it was sacked and destroyed, and at one blow, Assyria disappeared from history. Nothing remained of her except certain tactics and weapons of war. The Near East remembered her for a while as a merciless unifier of a dozen lesser states, and the Jews recalled Nineveh vengefully as the bloody city full of lies and robbery. In a little while, all but the mightiest of the great kings were forgotten, and all the royal palaces were in ruins under the drifting sands. Two hundred years later, after its capture, Xenophon's ten thousand marched over the mounds that had been Nineveh, never suspecting that these were the site of the ancient metropolis that had ruled half of the world. Not a stone remained visible of all the temples with which Assyria's pious warriors had sought to beautify their greatest capital. Even Asher, the everlasting god, was dead. When that great, written with such power in a wonderful wrap-up, 
Asher, their god, was dead. Matthew Henry sums up the spiritual lessons learned from Assyria. The end of an era has dawned upon us. The destroyer of civilizations has now been destroyed. What can we learn from Nineveh? Matthew Henry summed it up when he wrote, About a hundred years before, at Jonah's preaching, the Ninevites repented and were spared. Yet soon after, they became worse than ever. Nineveh knows not that God who contends with her, but is told what a God he is. It is good for all to mix faith with what is here said concerning him, which speaks great terror to the wicked and comfort to believers. Let each take his portion from it. Let sinners read it and tremble, and let saints read it in triumph. The anger of the Lord is contrasted with his goodness to his people. Perhaps they are obscure and little regarded in the world, but the Lord knows them. The scripture character of Jehovah agrees not with the views of proud reasoners. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.